Thank you for joining us. This is the Steve Schramm Show. We are excited to bring to you today an interview with an excellent, excellent author. His name is Dr. Sean McDowell. He's no stranger to the world of apologetics. I just got finished reading his new book, So the Next Generation Will Know. It was co-authored with J. Warner Wallace, another name you're probably familiar with. And this book gives tremendous insight on how we can interact with Generation Z. This is the generation uh, born between 2000 and 2015, I believe. And what we find in this book is that speaking to this generation is different than speaking to any other generation that we face for numerous reasons. So we're going to talk about that today. Well, like I said, we're speaking today with Dr. Sean McDowell. Now, he is the professor of Christian apologetics or a professor of Christian apologetics at Biola University. He's the national spokesman for Summit Ministries, a best-selling author, popular speaker, and a part-time high school teacher. Now, Sean speaks at camps, churches, schools, universities, and conferences, and has even spoken for organizations including Focus on the Family, the Chuck Colson Center for Christian Worldview, Backyard Skeptics Crew, and Youth Specialties, Hume Lake Christian Camps, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and the Association of Christian Schools International. He's been a guest on numerous radio programs. He's the author of 18 books, many of them co-authored with his father, Josh. And today we're talking about his most recent book, written with J. Warner Wallace, like we mentioned, So the Next Generation Will Know. All right, Sean, thanks so much for joining us here on the Steve Schramm Show. Steve, thanks for having me, buddy. Yeah, absolutely. We're super excited to talk about your your new book, which you guys graciously allowed me to read a little bit of before it came out so we could uh, we could be prepared for this conversation. Why don't you take just a few minutes and tell us, you know, really the heart behind the, this book, the spirit behind this book, why you felt this book needed to be written, and tell us a little bit about your co-author as well. Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. So my heartbeat, I'm an apologist and I engage cultural ethical issues, but my heartbeat is the next generation. That's because I'm a dad of three kids, Scotty, Shauna, and Shane. And also just a, a passion I've gained probably from my parents that work in the next generation and just looking at the challenges this generation has and just feeling a passion and an obligation to equip them. So for really two, two and a half decades, I've worked uh, with teenagers in different capacities. Well, one thing I started noticing recently is, first off, there are some radical changes from millennials as we start talking about this generation, Gen Z. Mm-hmm. They're not millennials 2.0, how they think, build relationships, understand the world, etc. And second, I started to realize, gosh, there's a lot of books about why you should engage this generation. There's a lot of books like what you should believe about this generation, but there's really not a practical guide that says, here are some strategies you can put into play. If you're a caring adult, whether teacher, youth pastor, mentor, neighbor, grandparent, what are just some hands-on practical things you can do? So it started brewing the idea in my mind. And sometimes it's fun to write a book alone, sometimes the co-author. And one of my dear friends, Jay Warner Wallace, number one, is such a good writer. He's such a good thinker. He's of a different generation. I am about a decade older. And he was a youth pastor. Now, people know Jay Warner Wallace because of cold Christianity 
and really his story of being an atheist and examining the gospel of Mark through the lens of forensic science. But what they don't know is that he was a youth pastor for years and still today a ton of his speaking and writing is for students. And his story in particular, I think is really unique is probably, gosh, now maybe 15 years ago or so. He had shortly become a Christian and was a youth pastor. And the talk at that time, and you'll kind of recall this, Steve, is people were saying, you know, it's not about apologetics, not about worldview, not about theology primarily. It's about creating experiences for this mm. generation. Yeah. So music and candles and all this kind of experiential stuff, which are not bad in themselves, but he starts off as a youth pastor, very artistic approach. And he writes in the book, he says, by Thanksgiving of their freshman year, all my seniors, every single one of them had bailed on their faith. Wow. And it kind of made him think, gosh, what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? And he started to realize, he goes, all this experiential stuff is great, but I'm going to take what I'm good at, being a cold case detective, analyzing evidence, and start teaching this generation, training them. That this isn't just a belief system. This is really true. Here's how you know it transformed his youth ministry hmm. had considerable success so i really just thought he has a unique voice a unique approach and the two of us together could write this in a unique way that i don't think anybody else could yeah yeah you know i and after having read the book uh, i get that and that makes a lot of sense something you said was interesting you said that they're not millennials 2.0 and i am a millennial and as i started to read this book i thought oh great now i also have three kids i have three boys and wow. and i thought you know uh this is great because I'm going to finally figure out how to talk to my kids. And then I realized, <laughs> but, but my kids are only three, two, and then not even one. So I realized, yeah. wait a minute, this is at 2015. All of this is probably going to change again with a whole new generation by the time I have to start really talking, uh, talking to them. So, uh, it just blows my mind how quick times change. Um, as I read this book, and I'll talk about some of the research in a minute, but as I read this book, I was just absolutely floored by some of what I, what I saw. I mean, one of the things you mentioned in there, I just never thought of this. Gen Z has never had to ask for directions. Right. Like, I mean, I don't, I can't, as much as I grew up with technology, I mean, I'm 29 years old, okay? So as much as I grew up with technology, and in fact, that's what I do for a living is technology work, uh, it still just amazes me how much different the world is for them and how much differently we need to be talking to them. Uh, of course, nobody is is probably unfamiliar here that's listening with your background. Your dad is, of course, the great Josh McDowell, and uh, one of the episodes that you always talk about in your in your uh, ministry is just at the time that you began to to doubt and question the faith. And 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 I would be remiss if I didn't let you take just a second and tell my audience what your dad told you and what it really was that led you to uh, to hold on to Christianity when you were doubting. Would you mind sharing just a bit of that backstory? I don't. Let me say a couple of things in light of what you shared first. Your kids that are three and under are not even Gen Z. I know. That's what scares me. <laughs> I, I mean, I, the first term I've heard was like Generation Alpha, like we're going to start over, you know, with Greek or something like that. But no one really knows. Right. But you're right. These, these trends change quickly. And that's why in the book, we kind of have these 
timely factors that there's stuff unique about Gen Z that we need to keep in mind to relate to them. But there's also more timeless factors that have always been true and always will be true, regardless of what we call this generation. So we really try to approach it that way and make sure the audience knows that you and I, I'm a Gen Xer, you're a millennial. We have more in common with this generation than we do differences simply because we're human. And we miss that sometimes behind, you know, the intersectionality that people talk about <laughs> and our differences that yeah. divide us. We have more in common. Now, for me, I grew up with a father that you mentioned. Uh, he was actually born in 1939, so he's not even a boomer. He, I guess they call his generation a builder. Hmm. So his experience growing up was radically different in the North and Michigan, but he had a really troubled background in the sense of a father who was an alcoholic. My dad was sexually abused for seven years. His sister committed suicide. So I was raised in a Christian home, very different, not perfect, no Christian home is, but loving, supportive, engaged, amazing, amazing parents. But even I, having a dad who's this great apologist, in a period where I really had questions about what I believed, and I didn't really reject it, but I just thought, I don't know if I really buy this. Is this true? Why do I believe this? Is it out of convenience, et cetera? And uh, basically went to my father, we're in Breckenridge, Colorado, and just told him, I said, Dad, I want to know what's true, but I don't know that I'm convinced Christianity is really true, not knowing how he would respond. And he looks at me, Steve, he goes, son, I, I think that's great. <laughs> and, and I just spoke back. I said, like, I was flabbergasted. I said, how can you think this is great? He goes, look, I raised you to love truth and to seek for truth. You can't live on my convictions. You have to decide what you think is true and go for it and believe it. He goes, I'm confident if you really seek truth, you'll keep believing in Jesus. You'll be led to Jesus because Jesus is the truth. And, you know, something like your mom and I will love you no matter what. And that in some ways, what we talk about in the book is that relational freedom to ask questions, really know my parents love me regardless, which I knew, but this just solidified it in some ways but also to ask tough questions. There's the relational side and the truth side is the timeless formula that I think is even more important as we look at Gen Z today. That's awesome. Yeah, that what a backstory. And I think we should all be so fortunate as to, to be able to have that kind of relationship with, with our kids and, uh, and have the integrity to say to our kids that, look, hey, what matters is the truth. If you're utterly convinced that something else is true, then you have to live by those convictions. But I believe that the truth is Jesus. Talk about belief in the sovereignty of God, just just, just security that uh, that knowing Christ gives us. Well, that that's absolutely great, and it sets the stage perfectly for going forward. So, I, you know, I, I don't want to bore anyone with lots of statistics, but Frankly, one chapter of the book was chock full of them, uh, and and the research that went behind this, you could just tell, was absolutely staggering. So maybe could you briefly give us some insight into Gen Z? What kind of things did you learn about them? What makes them so unique and distinct that'll set the stage for how we talk to them? So the way you, you, you mentioned the book, you're right. There's a lot of statistics, and we don't do that just to sound smart or bore people. <laughs> make sure people know there's an authority behind this. Mm. There's also a ton of stories. As you know, there's a balance between like the 30,000-foot view and the personal stories. Now, Gen Z, basically, I, I read every book I could get from Barna Study to everyone who speaks on Gen Z, from marketing to sociology to health 
I read every study. I mean, hundreds of pages I could find. And it seemed across these different studies that a number of different characteristics continually bubbled to the surface. Now, we list a dozen of them. We don't need to walk through all of those. But for example, here's a few. One that I think really shapes everything else is that this generation is a digitally native generation. Now, as a millennial, and for me as an Xer, I'm more of a digital immigrant in the sense of smartphone technology. I've learned to use it while I was growing up. Well, this is the first generation that really was swiping smartphones or tablets before many of them could speak or even read. Well, this shapes everything about them, the structure of their brains, their attention spans, how they build relationships, what they believe. So in many ways, that's kind of the, uh, for lack of a better analogy, like that's the key to understanding everything about this generation. So it affects them in a couple of ways. One would be we see a radical increase in mental health with this generation. But I was just reading a study this morning called the Next Mormons, and they said there's a number higher than ever Mormons drop out of their two-year missions. And the top study they cite, the reason they cite is mental health. And the reason I cite the Mormons is we are seeing across demographics, age, race, where you live, geography, a radical increase of depression and loneliness mm. in some ways is tied to smartphones. It's bigger than that. And I'm not blaming smartphones, but this is a piece of the puzzle that radically shapes the mental health of this generation. So it affects them relationally, but it also affects their worldview. So one of the ways I think the smartphone has shaped this Gen Z is they're basically conditioned to think they can have what they want, when they want it, where they want it, and however they want it. Mm. So look, I, when I was a kid, I don't know if you remember these, I'm older than you. I had these commercials called Coke versus Pepsi. Oh, yeah. And you remember those? And it, you think about the idea behind it. It's really, if you want a soda, there's two options, right? Coke yeah. or Pepsi, really. Well, now you buy your own soda-making machine, right? Get yeah. the size, flavor, yep. fizz level tailored just for you. I mean, Starbucks has 87,000 <laughs> possible drink options you can order. Wow. What technology has done? It's made everything from music to movies to consumer items, what you want, where you want, when you want it. And this shapes the worldview of this generation. They're conditioned to think. They can tailor the world to them and their desires and preferences rather than having to tailor their desires and preferences to an objective external world. Wow. These are some of the differences that are so powerful that are both relational and again, worldview in this generation that we have to understand to relate to them. Yeah, that that makes. I mean, those those things make all the difference in the world. I mean, again, I'll mention that I work in technology, and I kind of can see, I can understand, I, I can even see as we do different things with our children. Sometimes we'll let them have the phone restricted for a few minutes to play just to play a game or something. Uh, and with our first son, we actually let him uh, play with the like a like a little iPad a lot sooner uh, than I would have probably had I read this book first. But it's interesting <laughs> even to see how that shapes. I mean, because we've done things differently with our with our subsequent kids, and it's just interesting to see how 
these little things shape them. And so if you've got most parents who, let's just be honest, frankly, aren't paying attention to this. I mean, think about uh, to the extent that these kids can just roam on the internet by themselves because their parents want somebody to babysit them, a screen to babysit them for a few hours. Just imagine uh, as hard as it is for some of us to give up time with our smartphone, how it would be for these kids. So that's absolutely amazing. You know, another thing about that that might come out later in our discussion, I'm not sure, is that you mentioned how no longer does one just have to sit in a church service, listen to what the pastor says, listen to what the youth pastor says, etc. We've literally got kids who are fact-checking their pastors and their teachers right there with the largest library ever known to man, Google, uh, during the sermon. I mean... Well, I- this this hit me when I was speaking to a group of atheists at Berkeley. They were sitting there Googling everything while I said it. I thought, oh, my goodness, I better get my facts right. right. If I don't, they're going to lose some serious authority. And here's a group looking to show that what I believe is false. So this generation hmm. is just saying, you know, we used to sit around and debate things. Now someone's like, well, just Google it. Settle the debate. And I'm like, well, the debate is kind of fun. They're like, no, find an answer. And that's how they're going <laughs> to think. Wow. The same time they researched this, we're told this is a post-truth generation that doesn't care about truth anymore, only feelings. Now, there is something powerful about that statement to a degree. But ironically, if I tell my son, hey, you know, your bedtime's at eight o'clock and he's 15 years old, he's going to give me a ton of reasons why that's not a good policy and want to prove that his view is more <laughs> than mine Be- this generation research is because they want answers they want to check the facts now how having so much information shapes the way they think about facts and whether they can have confidence in truth is a separate question but i think this puts the impetus on pastors especially parents uh youth pastors teachers what we say to this generation if we flippantly give an answer and they Google it and find something else that's more reasonable, that undermines our authority and the authority of the position that we hold in terms of our faith. Mm. So Christians shouldn't need this motivation to care about truth, (laughs) but we ought to pay a lot better attention and be careful that what we say is true, that it's backed up. And if we don't know, say we don't know, or even more particularly, tailor how confident we are about something to the available evidence. These are ways to communicate with this generation that previous generations didn't have to think about. So my dad would go on campuses and speak about evidence that demands a verdict. Nobody had any accessible information on the other side. They just right. asked questions. But now it's right there at their fingertips. Hmm. We got to get it right. Yeah, yeah that, that's very, very important. And But not only is the, the truth aspect of it so direly important, but uh, what I seem to gather from your book, and you mentioned it a little bit already, is that if we don't balance that truth with relationship building, then it might just be falling on on deaf ears. And, and something that you mentioned in the book, you 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 mentioned or referred to a study that showed that one of the highest 
factors of faith, of, of Christian faith or any faith, I guess, transferring from a parent to a child was the relationship the child has with the parents. And in particular, the number one thing was the relationship with the dad. Now that struck me. That struck me hard. Now my, my, my dad and, and my mom uh, had divorced when I was very, very young. And in fact, he died um, in, in 2001. So it's been a while. So, and he wow. was not, to my knowledge, a Christian. So when I saw that, Number one, I have, of course, retained my faith, and I I thank God for my mom and my grandparents who who really stepped up and raised me, but um, I just found that statistic interesting. So can you talk a little bit about why the relationship is so important? We need to get our facts right, but why does the relationship matter so much, especially in the case of Gen Z? So this study was based on a USC professor named Vern Bankston, and he published a book in 2013 with Oxford Press on faith and families. And it was based on a study of four generations of 3,500 people over 35 years. And they were studying people of different faith traditions, not just Christianity, asking the question, statistically speaking, what factors are most relevant and important for faith transmission to be successful. And statistically speaking, the number one factor was not just a relationship with the father, but a quote, warm relationship with the father. That was number one. Now it doesn't mean the mom is not important. Okay. I think (laughs) dads tend to be more of the wild card. Mothers tend to be there more. So I think statistically we get different outputs, but that is the reality. And I think, of course, this isn't saying that there's not exceptions to this. You're an exception. My father's a clear exception to this. It's just statistically saying, what are the factors that make a difference and show how important that fatherly relationship is? And I think one of the big reasons is because our human relationships, in particular, our relationship with our dad, we tend to view our heavenly father through that relationship, whether we realize it or not. We import things from our heavenly father if he's close, I'm sorry, earthly father, if he's harsh or workaholic or empathetic or relational Mm. without realizing it. We import this earthly understanding of a father onto our heavenly father. So there's actually a massive study called uh, by, uh, oh shoot, my mind's going blank, by a psychologist and it's called, uh, not faith and families, uh, the faith, oh, I'm sorry, Faith of the Fatherless by Paul Vitz. And he showed that some of the great atheists in history, people like Camus, people like Nietzsche, Freud, etc., Sartre, one thing they had in common was a dead, distant, or harsh father. Mm. So especially with Gen Z, when there does seem to be some deep relational brokenness and there's some mental health, these relationships deeply shape how we learn theology. And I was just speaking with students today about the book of Romans. And we went through chapter 11. And today, this is a group of high school students. We saw how the first 11 chapters are really theology. Then in chapter 12, Paul starts talking about Christian practice and relationships. And I said to him, I said, look, it's both. We don't have good theology. And we need to think about God and salvation correctly. But we need to live this out in relationships. Something's wrong in our lives if we have bad theology or if we're lacking relationships. So discipling Gen Z is helping them develop a Christian worldview 
but in the context of balanced, loving relationships with the family, but also the church family as a whole. We think our greatest contribution to the kingdom here at Steve Schramm Ministries is the teaching and training of Christians to become confident and passionate servants of Jesus. One of the primary ways we do this is through speaking at churches and live events. So if you're interested in inviting us in to address tough topics such as the reliability of the Bible, the historicity of Jesus, creation versus evolution, the existence of of objective truth and morality, then you will want to consider bringing us in. SteveShram.com slash speaking. You can go there to get all the details, see a list of our most popular sermons, and fill out the contact form to invite us in. It just takes a moment. Again, all you have to do is go to SteveShram.com slash speaking, scroll to the bottom of the page, and fill out the contact form there to inquire about bringing us in. We're excited about the possibility of being able to address your church or your event with compelling truth and a clear gospel presentation. steveschramm.com slash speaking and fill out the contact form. We'll be glad to help you out. That's so important. And for me, you know, uh, just frankly, I struggle with this, right? Like, like, so, you know, I have a very analytical kind of mind, you know, I mean, I'm the, I'm the kind of, you know, nerdy apologetics guy. And for some reason, I don't know why, I just have a hard time uh, digging in sometimes and, and relating in the ways that I should. So we might not have time to go through it here today, but I will say to anyone listening, if you struggle with this, right, this concept of, of, of building relationships and ways to intentionally do that, uh, this book is chock full of them. There is all kinds of advice, some timeless and some timely, as Sean's already mentioned. And um, th- this will allow you to get just some basic ideas and I don't want to spoil the end but you know one of the things that you mentioned which I took heart in near the end of the book was that look you don't have to do all of this just just pick one thing right start there do one thing start to build that relationship start to start to integrate some of the concepts from this book as you interact with Gen Z and uh, and it'll be sure to 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 help you so one of the things then that was a uh, was prevalent in this in this book, and I'm noticing it more and more. As a matter of fact, I interviewed my own readers and listeners around the beginning of the year. I try to do that each year to kind of get a, a feel for the pulse of, of of where everybody's at. And apathyism, just oh, this this apathy towards spiritual things, is huge. People that follow my work have noticed that when they talk with others, they're just being met with complete apathy. Now, you mentioned this in the book. In fact, it's one of the core underlying premises of the whole thing. And I just think it's interesting because on the one hand, truth really does seem to matter to Gen Z. They do seem to be looking things up. They do. They are doing the fact checking. Like you said, they're providing reasons for why you know they should stay out later on their curfew. Can you help us with this? Why why the apathetic nature? Why do sometimes they seem to not be apathetic? And how do we start to think about countering that apathy and, and getting into making inroads in, into their lives? Well, the apathy can stem from a number of different sources, but I, I really believe that one of the reasons is there's just so many options for this generation to distract themselves, keep themselves busy, and not have to just stop and really think about the big questions of life. I always got to get an update on Instagram. I've got to see what, you know, is trending on Twitter or YouTube or Netflix. 
it's just this constant stream of something to do and busyness, which kind of can create a dullness about life and the bigger spiritual questions. I think that might contribute to it. Yeah. Uh, how, but, but I think you're right that in many ways, capturing this generation, they just kind of have a, a whatever attitude about spiritual things. So how do we light this fire? Well, a couple things to keep in mind. Number one, I think, is just to get kids out of their normal environment sometimes elicits a willingness to explore these issues. This is why camps can be so powerful, why conferences can be so powerful, Hmm. why coaching a kid's team and having conversations on the bus driving home can be powerful. Part of the question is, how do I just get my kids or the kids I care about out of their normal routine? Then these conversations tend to kind of, they tend to be more open to these kinds of conversations. The second thing is just building uh, relationships with this generation. Sometimes it takes time. They need to know that you care. They need to know that you're invested in them and don't want something from them. They probably need to know you're not quick to judge them, but that you value them. And then in that relationship, there's a relational capital that is built and a willingness to listen to one's perspective. I think it's interesting. Again, I was just reading this Mormon study, so it was prevalent to me, but younger millennials who probably be in, say, their mid-20s, a little older than Gen Z, but we see the trends increasing down with them. They question the larger Mormon church, but they tend to listen to the closer community of believers that are around them. And that's a broader trend we're seeing with Gen Z. Those who build relationships with them tend to be those who really influence them, coach, teach, mentor, neighbor. And the third thing is just have a long-term view. I mean, Jesus let people walk away from him. I mean, think about that. The rich young ruler, what must I do to be saved? Didn't like the answer Jesus gave. And Jesus didn't stop and go, well, keep eight of the commandments. Well, let me soften it. He just had to walk away. If somebody's heart is not open, there might not be anything, Steve, that you and I can do to force it, but we can plant seeds. We can build a relationship. We can pray for them. And then when something happens in their life, whatever it is, to trigger spiritual interest, hopefully they'll think of you and me. The last story I'll tell in this one is I had a student in my class, this is a few years ago, and he came to me and he goes, this is when I was teaching high school full time. He goes, Mr. McDowell, what do I have to do to get a C minus in your class? (laughs) Well, you know, he didn't mean it this way and I chuckled, but basically he's saying, I really don't care about your class. But I have to get a C minus to keep my license. So what's the minimal I have to do? And so I said, well, if you want me to be honest, here's what you need to do. Wow. So he graduates. The next year, he was in a junior college. And he shows up in one of my periods and says, Mr. McDowell, can I sit in and just listen? And I was flabbergasted. I said, sure. And I asked him afterwards. I said, honestly, you just wanted to barely pass my class. Why do you care now? He goes, man, I was, I'm in a junior college class. My professor challenged what we believe. I realized this is important. I just want to come and take some notes. I'm like, great. And then I asked him, I said, what could I have done differently to get you to understand the importance of this in high school? No hesitation, Steve. He looks at me, he goes, oh, nothing. He goes, nothing. I just wasn't there spiritually, but you were having more influence than you realized. That's a lesson we have to remember and not give up with this generation. Yeah, that's great because you might think you might not think that what you're doing is having any impact, but we never know how God's working on the inside of that person. Uh, and so if we trust the sovereignty of God, then we can trust that he can work through those things as long as we're being intentional about doing our part, 
God will be uh, certainly happy to do his. So um, that is absolutely great. Now, one of the very practical things that you talk about in the book, and this goes a little bit towards countering apathy also, but in a way, it, it, it's really uh, kind of where the the uh, the rubber meets the road, is with something that you and, and Jay Warner Wallace call tab worldview training and specifically you tie it to a method that you call two whys for every what now that frankly this was my favorite thing from the book uh, I, I this is the one takeaway that I will I will remember from this book when I forget everything else because I have a terrible memory but I'll remember this so can you tell us a little bit about this model of tab worldview training and why you see it working with Gen Z what's so important about it yeah, I'm glad you asked about this because this is actually one of the contributions that Jim made and why I wanted to get some of his teaching to as big of a platform as we could. So he's talking about t the tab, the T is theology, A is apologetics, and the B is behavior and Christian living. So theology, what is it that we believe? What do we believe about God, about salvation, about the afterlife? Apologetics, how do we know that it's true? And how does it shape the behavior, the way that we live? So if we just give apologetics and it doesn't shape our life, what's the point? What's the point? Yeah. On the flip side, if we just teach behavior, then it's moralistic and it's not informed theologically. And we're no different than any other religion that's out there. It's both of them together, theology, apologetics, which shapes our behavior. That's the tab. Now, what Jim came up with, he says, two whys for every what? So what we believe about God or what we believe about the scriptures, that's the content. We should have two whys or reasons behind every truth that we give. So the scripture is true. Why do I care? How does this affect my relationships? That's where you make it practical. So uh, really an example of this was I was just speaking recently in uh, Montana with my dad, and we actually invited an entire weekend to speak on sexuality and a particular pornography. And families came. There's probably, I don't know, four or 500 people there. And this mom brought her son, if I remember, was maybe 13 years old. And he said something to me that I, I will not forget. He said, thanks for not only talking about why pornography is bad, but ex or not, not only just tell me that pornography is bad, but why it's bad and why God designed sex between one man and one woman for life. He said, nobody ever told me that. And I thought, oh my goodness, if we have a generation, we just tell them, here's what you believe, but what you should believe, but not the whys behind it. Why of how we know it's true and why it matters to my life. We're going to lose this generation or raise a generation of people that are just moralistic following rules. So we're trying to get people in the book and the tab to teach theology, what we believe, apologetics, how we know it's true. Translate that to behavior. But every time we teach a truth, apologetic or theological, connect it to kids' lives. Why does this matter? How does this shape my life? How does this shape the way I live? And then when those connections are made, I think the theology really sinks home in our kids' lives. Wow, that, that makes a, a huge difference because that tells me how truth and relationships work together. I mean, that really is a, a model for understanding it. And what's interesting is if you take any one of those things out of the balance, well, that's where you end up with 
those folks who grow up in the church and then decide to leave. Or you end up with people who start to not care about these things because usually if somebody's just teaching uh, the behavior, the only theology that you get is just whatever cherry-picked theology uh, is used to support whatever person's idea of the right behavior was. But if you really start with understanding what you believe about God and you can then give reasons why you believe in it and why it matters, well, that's the key. And this two wise for every what I think is so helpful. And I think that this is uh, just a, a practice that we can get into, right? Like, I mean, there are applications for this that are maybe not even necessarily spiritual. Just get used to talking about why you believe the way you believe and the things that you believe. I mean, I was sitting here, I thought of you because you like to write about all the uh, the Marvel comics. And uh, <laughs> I, I, before this interview, my wife and I got about halfway through Doctor Strange. We've seen that one yet, I'm sure you have. Yes, uh, yes. We haven't seen it. So we're watching it now for the first time, kind of doing the Marvel movie marathon thing. And uh, I'm just like, I'm looking at all this crazy stuff and multiverses happening and all these things. And I'm like, man, if my kids were a little bit older, like this stuff, like some of this stuff would, would provoke serious questions given the nature of the worldview that I teach them. And, uh, you know, if, if you're not prepared, I mean, you know, parents have kids who are going to see these kinds of movies by themselves. And I'm just sitting here thinking like, holy cow, if we don't have some kind of system for talking to them about this stuff, there's no telling what they're going to end up believing by the time they're out, outside, out from under my roof. Well, that's exactly right. And I, I, let me make one connection here, and then I'm going to have to run. I promised my wife we'd go on a run together. <laughs> Absolutely. After school, we, we debriefed the day. But think about this. I watched that movie with my, my kids, my two older kids. And one of the like, directors of that movie actually went to Biola. And he studied at Biola a few years before I did. Huh. And one of the things he was doing in the movie was uh, Doctor Strange is trying to introduce into the Marvel Universe this spiritual component because apart from uh, that movie really before that a lot of the elements within the Marvel universe could be explained scientifically. Yeah. Everything has a scientific explanation. Now he doesn't bring it to a Christian worldview, which probably almost certainly wouldn't fit given the character. <laughs> right. But even as a Christian director, he's subtly working in saying maybe what you see and touch and think is not all there is yeah. to reality. And the same producer actually wrote a, book, a movie that was a horror movie called The Exorcism of Emily Rose with the same idea that he's challenging the worldview of naturalism by introducing this, you know, kind of subtle, in that movie it's not even subtle, spiritual component. Well, when I saw that, had a wonderful conversation with my son and just point out, I said, look at this. Here's a movie, we loved it, watched it together, built relationships. But you see how this is different from the other films. You see how there's a supernatural component and just helped unpack the worldview for him in the context of a relationship and something like the Marvel movies that he was already interested in. So that's kind of some of the things we do in the book is we try to give people real practical handles. And the idea is not to say that if someone reads this book, they walk away and go, wow, I have five new programs, eight <laughs> new things I have to do. This is overwhelming. But the people just say, oh, I just need to kind of open up my eyes and more strategically use the opportunities that I already have with my kids, the young people in my church, young people today. That's it. And if people take one or two of these and put them into practice, it can really shape 
the worldview of this generation. That is absolutely great. Great way to end it out. Uh, Dr. Sean McDowell, thank you so much for, for joining us. Where can they find more about the book and uh, tell everybody uh, how they can connect with you? Well, if they just go to seanmcdowell.org, and it's the good old Irish spelling, S-E-A-N, <laughs> mcdowell.org. I'm on Twitter. I blog. I have a podcast regularly uh, through Biola. So there's a lot of good worldview information there. You also find a link to the book and the title, So the Next Generation Will Know. And of course, there's Kindle and there is a physical version but it's a practical, hands-on guide to just really help anyone who cares about the next generation do so more effectively. Excellent, excellent. We heard it from the man himself. Thank you, sir, again for joining us, and this has been great. I know that we're going to get a lot of value from it. I appreciate you. Sure appreciate it, my friend. Keep up the good work. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, let's close out with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this interview you allowed us to have. Lord, thank you for our time together. Thank you for allowing us to unite on this thing of teaching Gen Z how to carry on in the faith. Lord, allow us as we read this book so the next generation will know. Be able to find one, three, five, seven different things that we can take away and start implementing right now, to reach the next generation for you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we want to thank you so much for joining us this time again on the Steve Schramm Show. This has been a wonderful interview with Dr. McDowell. You know, as we seek to do things for the kingdom, to, 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 to tell others about God, May we strive to get it right with this next generation. What a blessing it is to have the opportunity to speak life into them in this way. So I pray now that you will take this information, run with it, use it for God's glory. See you next time, right here on the Steve Shams Show.